And now for another amazing episode of the Pop Zara podcast. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup. It becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. For Bruce Lee fans, 2023 marks two auspicious anniversaries, both the anniversary of the martial arts superstar's death in July of 1973, and a month later, the 50th anniversary of what would prove to be his first and final uh, showing star of his amazing screen charisma and presence, Enter the Dragon, which became one of the biggest martial art films of all time, continues to wreak havoc across the world in both cinema and on physical and streaming media. But that's not enough. There's more. Our guest today on this episode of the Bob Zara podcast is none other than writer, editor, director of the new documentary, The Final Game of Death, a massive 223 minute, that's almost four hours of Bruce Lee stuff about an exploration of what would prove to be the most infamous entry in Bruce Lee's catalog. Mr. James Flower, hailing from the UK. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, guys. Oh, thank you. But I can't do it alone. I need my wingman. Other than that, we have returning Pop Zara favorite friend, Mr. Kevin from YouTube Story Dive. Kevin, welcome back. Hi. How's it going? He's back. He's back. Uh, thank you guys for showing up today. I appreciate it. Um, as I started, James, uh, it's a little it's a little bit of a sad note that the 50th anniversary of End of the Dragon is also the 50th anniversary of Bruce Lee's death. Um, how do you how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I think that the fact that five decades on, we're still talking about Bruce Lee and that, you know, his films are still so uh, still so widely watched and still being released in this form is just uh, it's a testament to what he brought to the screen that people had never seen before. And I mean, obviously, there is uh, an enduring fascination with, uh, you know, stars who die young, as you see with you know, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe and kind of other kind of people of that ilk. But I mean, I think with Bruce Lee in particular, the fact that he was, you know, at the vanguard of kind of what this kind of uh, international acceptance of Eastern action films of Kung Fu and uh, and, you know, bridging that gap between East and West, I think uh, is you know, reason to celebrate that the films are still so kind of widely, widely watched and, you know, loved all around the world. And, you know, that fact that he's still, you know, one of the most widely recognizable uh, kind of people to come from, you know, that part of the world is, yeah, like I said, it, it's a testament to everything that he achieved in his short but very eventful life. I was going to say, um, when I say auspicious, I, I actually had a, a good opportunity because this being the 50th anniversary in the United States, we have a company called Fathom Events who restores and they re-release films. And I was very, very fortunate to actually have a chance to see Enter the Dragon for the very first time in my life on the big screen, which was on my bucket list, on my cinematic bucket list. Uh, I never thought I would. And what's fun is that I don't think it was the 4K restoration that I think um, that your company, Aerofilms, uh, specializes in which we can get to later so i would have appreciated a little less grain but i love the grain so you know don't touch it leave it grainy please leave it very nice and grainy i want to see all the imperfections but it was fantastic to see it with a crowd and to see like you said how much the film and bruce lee's persona resonates uh, which is which is fun because we're we're at a time in box office right now when the idea of a movie star is debated 
we we could have this conversation about Tom Cruise. And by the way, who would have ever thought the guy from Risky Business would be the greatest action star in the world in 2023? <laughs> Never would have thought. Must be the underwear. But I'll say this, uh, it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. People were quoting the lines. I felt like Bruce Leroy in, you know, the class, you know, in the film. The only thing missing was Motown music, but it was fantastic. Uh, the line in The Last Dragon? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce Leroy. Still the greatest synthesis of Motown and martial arts uh, I've ever seen. So, yeah, no. in the top three, at least, of Motown and martial arts. So real quick, so we're here to talk about the documentary that you uh, that you were instrumentally in creating, uh, James, the final game of death. And like I said, it is a monster. It is a mammoth. It's almost four hours long. It is, from what I understand, contains every frame of footage uh, that has been found over the years from the original the original tapings when Bruce Lee and his friends were contemplating and creating what would become, in some version or another, the the game of death released in 1978 in a version i'll just say that in a version uh since then it has gone off to become and permutated into thousands of different versions um i think i think we could safely say that the game of death is its own metaverse you get to see every version that has ever been created um including yours including yours and we can get into that in a minute so tell us a little bit about the final game of death and why bruce lee fans should be excited well i mean uh the final game of death came about kind of by accident. I mean, it's supposed to kind of backtrack and uh, at, at one kind of important piece of information to sort of important background, I guess, to fill in with this is that um, so the final game of death is sort of the centerpiece part or one of the main parts of a big box set that I was responsible for overseeing and kind of putting together that's come out in the UK called Bruce Lee at Golden Harvest. That's uh released by Arrow Video, who uh, are my employer. I'm a full-time Blu-ray producer uh, for Arrow. Uh, Arrow, for anyone listening who doesn't know, is a company that uh, is a distributor that specializes in collector's editions of classic and cult films and uh, releases kind of a really eclectic slate, kind of all kinds of things from, you know, best picture winners to Z-grade schlock and everything in between. And, you know, we, we try and do things like on a, you know, these definitive editions that uh, have new 4K restorations wherever possible and new bonus features and new artwork and all the rest of it. Um, we got the opportunity to acquire um, the, the films that Bruce Lee made for Golden Harvest, which is the company in Hong Kong that he worked for in the early 70s in the two years leading up to his death. Uh, that doesn't include Enter the Dragon, actually. Enter the Dragon is a film that was, uh, it was it, it's, it's a co-production between uh, Warner Brothers and Golden Harvest, but because, um, well, it's technically Concord Productions, which was Bruce Lee's own company, rather than Golden Harvest, but Golden Harvest released it. Anyway, uh, Warner Brothers kept the rights in the US and the UK, and were going to release it on 4K themselves, which is why we couldn't get the rights to do that. But we had the rights to uh, the other films that, uh, Fortune Star, who were the company that acquired Golden Harvest, kind of had in their catalogue. So that's The Big Boss, Fist Fury, Way of the Dragon, which is the only film that, a uh, completed film that Bruce Lee wrote and directed uh, in his lifetime. And uh, then uh, a series of films that were made after Bruce died. So Game of Death from 1978, Game of Death 2 from 1981, and a couple of documentaries as well. So we had all these films and uh, I, I spent about a year and a half kind of putting together this huge box set with all these, you know, different cuts of the film, different dubs, new bonus features, uh, you know, it's a huge project that kind of took a long, 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 long time to do. 
So one of the films that we were doing a brand new 4K restoration of was the 1978 version of Game of Death, which, yes, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, <laughs> kind of the, it being one of the permutations of this footage. So we were, you know, accessing original film elements, which related to that version of the film, which is kind of, it, it's, it's essentially a bastardized version of kind of what Bruce Lee set out to do. It uses about 11 minutes of the two hours of footage that he shot, but uh, creates this whole new plot line, a whole, it, a completely different context for that material. So it's it's not representative of what Bruce Lee intended to do when he was uh, shooting that footage six years previously. Um, so we were restoring the 1978 Game of Death, and I asked, uh, so we were working with a Italian film lab called La Magin Ritrovata, who a few years previously had done another 4K restoration of the film that uh, we felt we could improve upon, so that's why we were doing a new 4K restoration. So we uh, talked to La Magin Ritrovata and uh, sort of were asking them about you know, if they had any material relating to like a rare alternate version of the film that came out in Hong Kong. Um, and they said, oh, no, we don't have that. We've got some outtakes, but uh, we I don't know about anything else. And we said, wait, outtakes? What do you mean? Can you can you send us that? Can you send us what they've got? And they sent us it, and it was all two hours scanned in 4K of the footage that Bruce Lee had shot uh, before he died, like the raw footage. Um, and this was stuff that we thought had been lost. We thought that had been, you know, shipped off to Japan and never seen again. You know, so this was a pretty momentous finding. And, you know, once we found it, we kind of, again, purely by accident, it was just, you know, there was this question, what do we do with it? Um, you know, how can we make this a part of the box set in a way that is, you know, informative and entertaining and uh you know justifies its inclusion because i mean simply just putting on a bunch of uh raw footage that doesn't even have any sound um is quite a it's not really something that's done or it's quite unconventional i mean i guess we could have done it but it would have really only appealed to like a very small amount of people and it would have been a missed opportunity compared to what I wanted to do or what I felt would have been right to do, which was to use it as a springboard to discuss uh, what Bruce Lee's original intentions were, but then kind of got messed with and transformed in the years since and have been so kind of uh, speculated upon. And, uh, you know, people have uh, kind of gone to all kinds of, they've extrapolated all sorts of things from this, just this little bit of information that's been available about the project over the years. And um, yeah, and then kind of, I had in mind something that was similar to uh, a documentary I really love, which is, uh, so my favorite movie of all time is uh, The Night of the Hunter from 1955, the Robert Mitchum film. I don't know if you guys mm -hmm. have ever seen that. Yeah. Uh, so there's a wonderful documentary called Charles Lawton directs The Night of the Hunter, which basically uh, has a bunch of raw outtakes from The Night of the Hunter where you can hear Charles Lawton, the director, sort of uh, directing the actors from off camera. And uh, it kind of presents some of that footage in the context of the footage in the film. And I wanted to do something that was kind of similar, but with this film, with uh, The Game of Death. And it kind of presented a few different challenges where, uh, unlike The Night of the Hunter footage, the game of death footage didn't have any sound. So we had to kind of 
decide what to do with that and kind of what was going to go on top of it because I mean you could just present it with music but again it would be kind of a missed opportunity where you know there's no explanation there's no context for what the footage is and it is you know that without the kind of an idea of what the plot would have been or I don't know I, I just I wasn't convinced that it would have been entertaining for any kind of audience and or again other than a kind of small neat kind of cadre of diehard hardcore bruce lee fans. super fanatical <laughs> bruce lee absolutely people. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that then kind of eventually kind of expanded into the documentary as it is today which uh, the fact that it's longer than heaven's gate is just mm. completely absurd and it's something that i still <laughs> wonder how the hell it happened it was kind of by accident but uh you know bit by bit it kind of became what it is and uh yeah well, James, I got a question for you. Um, I remember, um, for those of us old enough to remember VHS before YouTube, when sure. finding footage of films like this was not impossible. Mm. You know, you had to tr- you had to trade film at flea markets. You had to trade with friends. Hopefully, that someone didn't steal the film you wanted to see at Blockbuster Video, <laughs> that, <laughs> which never did that myself. I mean, I would never do that. But. Uh, but do you remember, uh, I, I, I made a note when I was watching it, it feels like your film's like a companion to John Little's uh, 2000 documentary, Bruce Lee, A Warrior's Journey, which you mentioned in the documentary. I was actually happy to see that. That was the first instance of the foot, you know, of what you call lost footage being found. And sort of, there was an attempt to restore the original intent of Bruce Lee. Now, from what I understand, there, like you said, there was more footage that was found. So, so here we are extrapolating that into something else. And um, I was talking with Kevin about this before, um, you know, a couple days ago before we we spoke with you. What's so interesting is that it's not I correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the final game of death is necessarily a documentary per se, but it's sort of a philosophical um, philosophical look at not just the not just the footage of what Bruce Lee's film may have been, but sort of hit a, a methodology of of how Bruce thought about his martial arts and how it could be applied to film and philosophy itself um at four hours long it's not just kung fu there is i your film could be taught in both cinematic and philosophy theory classes and i think um like i said i feel like i accomplished something when i finished i learned a lot more but the 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 part that really got to me is i like the original 1978 game of death less than i've ever liked it before and i don't know if that makes me sad or not Um, there are there are those of us who grew up in the 1980s and the 1990s, probably not knowing that Game of Death was not a Bruce Lee film. That you know we think about. Unfortunately, as much as we love Enter the Dragon, some of the most iconic imagery of Bruce Lee comes from Game of Death. You know the the yellow tracksuit, Kareem Abdul Jabbar, that sort of thing. And I, I do want to explore that a little bit. So how did you feel um, as someone who probably grew up like we did? Um, and Kevin can talk about his fascination with the Ninja Turtles here in a second as well, (laughs) (laughs) which is true. But how do you, how do you, how does it feel as someone when your job is to not only sort of restore Bruce Lee's original intent as much as you can, but to sort of correct the record about what, what's existed for almost, you know, 45 years. 
Well, I mean, first off, you're absolutely right. Um, John Little made A Warrior's Journey in uh, the early 2000s, which uh, this was hot on the heels of uh, John Little had uh, discovered Bruce Lee's original script notes in the Lee family estates kind of warehouse uh, in the late 1990s. Uh, and this was coupled with it's kind of happened more or less simultaneously with the game of Death Brushes being uh, kind of rediscovered in the Golden Harvest archives around the same time. Um, so there were two films that were made around that same time. So A Warrior's Journey and uh, a strange Japanese film called Bruce Lee and G.O.D., which mm-hmm. kind of combines uh, a sort of docudrama retelling where you have actors playing Bruce Lee. And uh, <laughs> it's it, it's it's quite strange. Um, but yeah, there's you have these two kind of different versions two different documentaries that came out in the early 1990s uh, and there have been other attempts to kind of build upon that in the years since uh, there was another version of the footage called game of death redux that was included in the uh, criterion set um i mean in terms of warrior's journey you're absolutely right i mean the final game of death absolutely stands on the shoulders of what john little was doing in the early 2000s um but there were kind of some important points of difference where um I really wanted to set it apart. Uh, for one thing, Warrior's Journey is um, its more of a documentary about Bruce Lee's life. Very little mm. of it is actually about the game of death in the lead up to the footage. It's more kind of the taking his, it's sort of really encompassing his whole 32, the whole kind of first 30 years of his life and his philosophy and kind of, you know, all the rest of it. That's kind of John Little's main focus before it gets to the, the game of death reenactment with the footage. Um, whereas I kind of wanted to focus very specifically on the game of death and, you know, the, the project itself and what he wanted to do with it and, you know, how it was representative of uh, Hong Kong filmmaking at the time, of Lee's career at the time. I mean, one of the things that we really wanted to do with the box set in general was to take the focus away from, as kind of odd as it sounds, take the focus away from Bruce Lee, the legend and his life story of which the films are really are a very small part. Um, but the kind of the, a lot of the DVD extras, a lot of the other things that have been in the past had been, you know, interviews with people who knew him and, you know, mm-hmm. all this stuff. And uh, whereas I wanted to be, no, let's talk about the filmmaking. Let's talk about the films. Let's kind of really put them in the context and put them in a moment. And uh, the final game of death part, one of the things I wanted to do was to really, hammer that home and in doing so one of the main things i wanted to do with that in terms of the 1978 film was to really create a kind of clear demarcation line between bruce lee's game of death and robert klaus's game of death so robert klaus is the director of the 1978 version um and i I completely agree with you that i think it in a way that it's probably advantageous to golden harvest there's been a lot of confusion over the years over to what degree the 1978 film is a completion of bruce lee's vision or a, you know it, it's uh which it, it it isn't at all really but i mean um i mean the truth is i i don't hate the 1978 film i think it's okay but i mean it's i think there's no other way you can really <laughs> look at um how it, the circumstances in which it was made other than it being a crass piece of exploitation which is fine mm-hmm. exploitation films are fun and you know i think as a yeah. moment in time it's it's wild and it's i, I i'm seeing in, in a couple of days i'm seeing a new documentary that's been made by seven films called enter the clones of bruce which is all about that, yeah uh mm-hmm. and i'm really looking forward to it really looking forward to seeing what they've done <laughs> 
but I really, I, I, for me, having access to this footage, it just presented this. And, and not only that, being able to present the footage in the best quality it's ever been seen in before and with these two additional reels that had never been found before. So the, the, uh, previous, there were 11 reels of footage in total, totaling two hours. And for whatever reason, the first reel and the last reel had never been found before they hadn't been put together with the rest of the footage so the first reel was this sequence which is uh, fans have called the log fight which is this uh which bruce lee's not even in it's, it's a fight between dan and asanto who's kind of mm -hmm. the bad guy on that floor and then the other two guys around there and then the last uh reel is uh some exterior footage uh shot outside in the new territories which is the kind of the countryside in hong kong and uh this was footage that had been seen briefly in another documentary but never the whole thing and you know we had I get like I said we had all these two hours and you know one of the kind of the big decisions I had to make was well okay how much of this footage are we going to include and you know my original thought was well we wouldn't include all of it we just you know <laughs> we pick and choose bits and pieces and uh you know we can maybe have like a two-hour documentary and then a reenactment or something and you know um, well, the documentary part I'll get to in a sec because it's interesting that you say you're not sure whether to call it a documentary because I agree that it's not really one. I think a documentary is something that is, you know, that's probably where you'd have more contemporary footage and interviews and things, whereas uh, the probably a more accurate descriptor for this is a video essay where it is more kind of contemplative and subjective. Well, and, can I say this? If you sure. submitted this, if you submitted this film, at university, you would have a doctorate in philosophy. <laughs> this, video, would, this, yes. would this would qualify. This would qualify that. Yeah, maybe that's yes. what I should be calling it. Um, but yeah, but, I think uh, we originally the idea was that maybe we wouldn't include all the footage and that whatever we didn't include, we'd put in the extras or something. But the more I thought about it, just the more I couldn't bear to let go of any of it because, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, that full two hours of footage is Bruce Lee's game of death. He never got to the point where he edited or dubbed the footage so at that point anything else you do beyond that is uh you know it's 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 in imposing your own interpretation of it and i think i've tried to be both in the narration and in any discussion of this since very upfront about the fact that we can never know what bruce lee's vision of the film would have been all we can do is you know speculate at this point you know outside of doing a seance it's like what can you do that like kind of he uh, his notes were scattered all over the place and they do not reveal the full picture especially when it comes to the sequences that he didn't shoot particularly the ending so even though there are plenty of people who claim to know what you know what he would have done with it and what the how the film would have turned out it's it's bogus there's there's no way of knowing so really it felt appropriate that the only way to do to really sh you know present bruce lee's the game of death is to present those full two hours because ultimately that's what it is well uh quick comment though i i was going to say this about film we can talk about film restoration uh later sure. because i do have some very interesting questions for you on mm. that but i i would say that i don't think there's ever been a film that has benefited less from 4K restoration than 1978's Game of Death. And you know what I'm talking sure. about. This is a film that inf very infamously, let's just get it out of the way, infamously taped a picture of Bruce Lee's face to a mirror. And when I'm yes. and, and watching, and watching, <laughs> watching the footage now, the, there are moments like that sprinkled throughout the film. Like I've never noticed before where they would tape towels over Bruce Lee's body or 
ill matching shots, footage that does not match. And maybe it's charming in a way, and I think it is charming, but I can't imagine uh, the sort of jobs one would have to do to restore something where the original print was never cohesive to begin with. It was sort of a, a pastiche of different film stocks, of different film, of different countries' film, of different years, of different stock footage, of different films entirely, just creating something to make money in 1978. Yeah, I was actually, I, you were kind of generous to Robert Klaus in the uh, documentary to say, <laughs> to say, uh, you know, that um, he did have an impossible task ahead of him when he made his version of Game of Death. Uh, and he did, you know, I mean, he was under pressure from uh, the studios to to come up with something from this footage, which was not coherent. Uh, you know, I mean, what Bruce Lee had shot hadn't been formed into a coherent story yet. Um, and I thought you, you know, in your commentary in this documentary was was fairly generous to Robert Klaus in that respect. But as a Bruce Lee fan, I just really wish Robert had at least tried to get something similar to what Bruce Lee had intended um, with his Game of Death. Uh, I didn't actually realize what um, Bruce's original story had intended to be until I saw um, A Warrior's Journey. And then when I saw that, I realized, oh, Game of Death was actually going to be really, really cool if Bruce had finished it because it was basically like a video game. It was like, you know, there's this mysterious pagoda and uh, he goes into it. And like a video game, he ascends up the levels, beating a boss on each level. And in fact, as you point out in the documentary, it inspired video games like Kung Fu Master. Um, they credit Game of Death with inspiring, um, you know, these these early NES platforming NES games or Nintendo games where uh, and other games where they they ascend basically up and beat a boss on each level. Uh, that was Game of Death. But it Bruce Lee's, you know, way of doing it, it of course, it was much more philosophical uh a pagoda is a a, a, a you know a, a way of it's a buddhist worshiping temple and he kind of was viewing everything from this sort of buddhist philosophy of reaching enlightenment um but uh, yeah well, as soon as i realized that's what the actual plot of game of death was i was like oh man that could have been so so cool and i just wish robert klaus had at, at least tried to do something like that instead of just throwing everything bruce lee had done out and saying we're going to, um, you know, just find a stand-in for Bruce, and it's going to be kind of about Bruce's life because he's a, an action star. It, I mean, the plot has nothing to do with what Bruce Lee intended. Um, anyway, I guess my question for, uh, for you, James, then is, uh, you know, do you give Robert Klaus uh, some, you know, some leeway there, some credit? Do you think what he did was right, or do you think it could have been better the way he treated his his version of Game of Death? I mean, I, as I said, I think, as I said in the documentary, I think it really was an impossible task. I mean, not just yeah. the fact that they had no idea what Lee's story was. There was no script. There was okay. no formalized thing that he could have used as a reference document. There was so he, or he just had two hours of footage with no sound that, you know, you can only kind of guess the context from that. And on top of which, most, you know, the actors who, many of the actors who uh, were in the film uh, in the 1972 footage were unwilling or unable to come back. The only one who actually did is Dan Inosanto. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wouldn't come back. Uh, mm. Jihan Jay, the sec the boss on the, the Capkido boss, I believe was in prison at the time. Oh, really? Uh, Jay Wan had, if he hadn't died already, he was soon about to. And uh, James Tien was the other actor who 
uh, was working for Golden Halves at the time, so possibly could have come back, but maybe he didn't want to, or just like it's it would have been a very hard job for him to do something that would have fully utilized that footage um, any more than they did. So I, you know, I I I think you have to be kind of give uh, be pretty generous there to say that you know there wasn't probably much more they could do with all those restrictions in place, uh, all those restrictions in place. That said. The film that they did make, and the degree to which it, you know, does things like uh, use the footage of Lee's funeral and take bits and pieces from the tabloid gossip surrounding. Yeah, I didn't like that at all. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, I, like I, said, I, I don't hate the 1978 film, and I certainly don't wish, wish to trash, uh, you know, anyone who does enjoy it because a lot of people do, and it, it's, it's a mm-hmm. big nostalgic thing for a lot of people, and you know. My big thing was that, like I said, I, I really wanted to uh, treat the two Game of Deaths as entirely separate. But for fans of the 1978 Game of Death, I wanted the, you know, our edition of that film to be definitive and be the best thing, but treat it as its own beast. So, you know, we've got, you know, in, an new interview with Colin Camp. We've got, you know, all these things that treat it as its own film, as its own thing. Um, but like I said, that it, it was very important to me that we kind of treat these things as separate, whereas in the past that hasn't been the case. Um, but yeah, in, terms well, the, in terms of to go back to your restoration question and the fact that this is such a kind of uh, <laughs> such a kind of cut and paste mutt of a film, literally because, cut and paste. Yeah, it's it's and with all these bits and pieces, we you know we wanted to be true to that as well. So I mean, certainly there was. I don't know what more we could have done to make it kind of shinier and better looking. I mean, I guess maybe we could have taken some of the, you know, pristine original negative footage from the films it's ripping off, but then it wouldn't have been true to what it is, which is, I mean, part of that disparity in the, you know, the clips and the difference when it kind of cuts to the older footage, that's part of what it is. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think you should improve on that. I think that's kind of, you know, the whole, that that doesn't make the film better. It just it just being true to what it is was paramount for us. And it was yeah, it generally is when we restore films, we want it to look like it did uh, when the filmmakers signed it off originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had to present it in its historical context, what it was at the time, and not you know yes, maybe what it absolutely. could have been. I know uh, you know my my brother and I were huge Bruce Lee fans as kids. Uh, we started with Ninja Turtles, and then when we discovered Bruce Lee, we we both wanted to be Bruce Lee, and we bought this um, five. Uh, VHS box set of Bruce Bruce Lee. I think this came out in the 90s or something. Mm. So it had all the movies, including Robert Klaus's version of Game of Death. And uh, I have to say, we loved all the movies except for Game of Death. Most of it, um, we even at the t- that time we were laughing at it, the part with the cutout, you know, and everything. But the thing that I do take away from that film is that it, it something that I remember is the moment that the real Bruce Lee comes on screen. Uh, which is near the end. It's like they, they most of it's this uh, stand-in for Bruce, and they hide his face in all types of increasingly ridiculous ways. He has a beard at one point. He wears glasses. He, they have a cutout. Uh, but the moment that he goes up those stairs and you see the real Bruce Lee coming up those stairs, it's like you even him just coming up the stairs, you just instinctively get this visceral, visceral reaction to the presence of Bruce Lee, and you can just understand how magnetic this guy was the kind of presence the kind of aura this guy had uh that bruce lee had that made him so special because you know before that it's you know it's kind of entertaining it's kind of a you know in its own historical context it's entertaining as kind of a b-movie but when the real bruce lee comes on it's like 
okay, now I have to watch this. This this guy is someone to be watched. Something is going on here. And so remembering that, watching that VHS, that's what I remember from Robert Klaus's uh, Game of Death. Um, but I have to say, your your documentary, I really appreciated uh, the final Game of Death. I really appreciated your approach to leaving no stone unturned, basically, with it, showing all the footage to kind of make it definitive and not try to interpret what it could have been. Um, because th there is the temptation, like, I would like to do this to kind of theorize about what the story could have been, fill in all the holes of the story. But what you wanted to do was just present everything Bruce had shot, every last frame, just put it all out there so that once and for all people can see this is what Bruce had done and you can make what, you know, what you want of it. Uh, but this is what he did. And uh, we're not going to try to, you know, interpret it beyond what we know was his intention. Uh, anyway, so I really appreciated that. And it's, you know, I think your documentary is a must watch for any Bruce Lee fan. No, thank you very much. Well, I mean, we, I originally, perhaps we were going to go into more of the kind of the interpretations and stuff. But it, yeah. it, as we went along, it, we decided to kind of strip it back more and more to kind of just the facts, ma'am, just the kind of the production and yeah. uh, <laughs> side of things. And because a lot of that is, you know, that's not necessarily widely known and, it felt more pertinent to what we were doing, which was, you know, presenting uh, obviously the the documentary, but also kind of the our um, uh, <laughs> slightly cheesy recreation or re uh, recreation isn't the right word. Our, our um, you know, our idea of what a, an early 70s game of death might have been like at the mm. end of the final game of death, where we have this, you know, 40 minute short film version where it's kind of cut together with sound. And um, I mean, the the title, the final game of death is kind of it's meant pretty much with your tongue in cheek because uh you know we know full you, well that like the dialogue about this uh you know this film and Bruce it will Lee never film, end it yeah will never end because it's you <laughs> yeah. know again it's part of the thing of this sudden death with this unrealized potential it is just this mythological thing that is going to fascinate people for many years to come and you know I, I i've even heard recently that in fact the the makers of game of death redux which is the version of the footage that's on the criterion box set they're making an independent documentary about game of death which takes a slightly different tack from what i gather so you know, that's going to be a whole whole new thing and that's going to be completely different for what we've done i'm sure and it will probably be a bit more you know along the lines of what you're talking about a bit more kind of interpretive um i'm putting you know i'm putting their words in mouth i don't know for sure i don't i'm not in touch with the filmmakers but um there's plenty of avenues to cover and we've you know we've covered some others will cover others and you know that it's you know i think the main thing again having access to kind of all the footage was just a thing where we wanted to make sure that that was back out there in the world in the best possible quality and you know to help be able to kind of correct the record a few times where there's been some you know uh, a, a lot of kind of errors have crept in the past with people talking about these things and, and maybe we've contributed some errors as well i don't know but i mean I, I, generally we we were pretty rigorous in our research and tried to make sure that we were telling you know the truth as much as we could kind of about game of death as much as is possible given how little is really known quick question for you james um just to to build on what kevin was chatting about uh, growing up as a, a you know becoming a bruce lee fan through other sources uh, might be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It might be Jackie Chan. It, it might be China O'Brien. It might be something. It's to it's the akin of finding out your favorite song is a cover of of an artist that existed 30 years ago. And you really how 
how could music be so good 30 years before I was born? Yeah, it exists. Um, but you, you quote something interesting I want to use a jumping off point. Um, in the film, you say, it's difficult to imagine a more thorough vandalism of Bruce's original intent or a more committed misunderstanding of the philosoph uh, philosophical underpinnings he imbued in his work than what Klaus achieved. And rather than sort of condemn Klaus, I, I do want to use that as sort of a, a starting point for something that I would love your opinion on, and that is the era of which this footage was taken, the era of which it was produced, which is the 1970s. You know, this footage was shot before Enter the Dragon was finished, and some footage was shot after Enter the Dragon. Was it was any footage shot after Enter the Dragon, or was it all prior? Uh, well, Lee didn't film anything else after okay. Enter the Dragon, no. So the, the, there's the, we've got the little bit of uh, screen test material that he mm -hmm. filmed, uh, which... Um, again, that was on the set of Enter the Dragon. So he, he was, you know, intending to commence shooting again, kind of once Enter the Dragon had been released, but he died before that happened. So, so from a cultural understanding, if he had gone back and finished uh, whatever would become a game of death, who knows what he could have brought with him from the experience of Enter the Dragon? Who knows? It could have been scrapped. It could have been uh, reinforced, buttressed. Anything could have happened because his first Hollywood film would have become... Again, this this is speculation. Uh, Bruce Lee died before he became famous worldwide. Um, you mentioned James Dean. You know, we mentioned so many other stars, and and there's you know there's a theory you've heard that death is what makes you immortal. Like death, you die before you reach your 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 apex, and therefore you become part of the ether. You become part of the imagination. Um, you mentioned a few documentaries. Uh, you mentioned a documentary a while ago. You didn't. I don't. We might be talking about the same one. Uh, came out a couple of years ago. I don't want to say the name of it to embarrass them, but it was basically just people talking about what Bruce Lee meant to them. And mm -hmm. like my Bruce Lee, my Bruce Lee. And you realize that Bruce Lee has become that. He's no longer Bruce Lee, the action star. He's, everyone has their own Bruce Lee, how they came to Bruce Lee, how, what Bruce Lee means to them. Um, for me, it was Enter the Dragon. I love it. But for other people, it might be the yellow tracksuit. But in the 1970s, there were no martial art films in the United States. There were no black exploitation. Like, this is sort of the explosion of where it all comes from. And, you know, to, even today, and Kevin and I were, were chatting about this last week, even today, we still have talk of the first Asian-led martial art film, you know, Disney film, or the first inclusion film, or this. We're, we're still having those conversations. But can you imagine extrapolating that back 50 years ago, what that meant to have in Enter the Dragon, for example, three main leads of different races. You have White, you know, John Saxon, you have Jim Kelly, you have Bruce Lee, and it doesn't matter in the context of the film. It's not a film about races, it's a film about action and philosophy. And so when you when we talk about that, when you talk about Robert Klaus, you know, creating a narrative around there, you've heard of the, uh, the fights that Bruce Lee had, the, you know, the production fights about inserting Asian philosophy and inserting his philosophy into Enter the Dragon, which stand out in the film. They, they're they wonderful for it, the, the moments. But without Bruce Lee there to fight for that, Game of Death 1978 is completely absent of those moments. It's not there at all. And um, Kevin and I were joking about this. It's sort of like when you see a band like Wham, for example, and they break up. One person goes off to great things and the other person sort of fades into the background. Robert Klaus never experienced anything like he did with Enter the Dragon. Um, in fact, he would go off to make some of the most notoriously bad martial art films, like Jim Cotta, for example. Right, right. And but you look at but when he worked with Bruce Lee, he created magic, and you have to wonder how much of that 
what you see on the screen is because of Bruce Lee fighting for it and Bruce Lee maintaining that level. Again, it's it's not there in Game of Death, his version of it. But your version, um, excuse me, your documentary shows that it, it would have been there. It could have been there, possibly. You know, I've like watching the footage, it's not just footage. You extrapolate it in a way that I think makes you understand that it's not just punching and kicking. There's something else going on. And I think that's very important that you're, you know, you're able to sort of um, explore that because I've never seen that before in context of this footage. Well, I think it's interesting uh, what you're talking about in the sense that, you know, one of the things that's kind of inconvenient about the fact that, you know, Game of Death is an incomplete film is that, mm-hmm. you know, for all we know, the rest of the stuff he could have shot could have been terrible. I mean, there's no, you know, I mean, uh, I, given the fact that he was very much on top form in terms of the stuff he shot is so interesting for the Game of Death and the fact that the material that he shot for Enter the Dragon stands out like a sore thumb as being the strongest stuff in the film, arguably, mm-hmm. is, you know, I think testament to the fact that The Game of Death probably would have been a very interesting film, but again, we'll never know. And I mean, I think, you know, in in a wider sense, the fact that Bruce Lee died before he could disgrace himself, I guess. No, that's true. And, yes. and, and, make, and make bad films that would have tarnished his reputation or done anything else that would have done that is, you know, again, that's all part of the legend. But I mean... I think, you know, again, what's the promise of what's there is so strong. And the fact that, you know, well, again, we'll never know to what degree the rest of what he might have done for the game of death could have been, you know, completely, you know, corny and cliched and, you know, not up to the standard of the stuff he'd already filmed. But um, yeah, it's fun to speculate, isn't it? It's fun. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, and well, it's, that just keeps it going. Well, speaking of speculating, um, you know, me watching it, I can't help but try and interpret, figure out what his intention was. And I know the whole point of your um, documentary video essay is is to just show what was there and not go beyond that. But I am really curious, um, do you have an interpretation as to like your own personal theory as to what you think was at the highest level of the pagoda? Because that's in your recreation that's uh, something, of course, that's left out because Bruce never finished, you know, it, so for people listening that haven't seen A Game of Death or haven't seen um, um, your documentary, basically the, the plot is that he is forced to go to this mysterious pagoda. Each level of the pagoda has, uh, you know, a martial arts master, which he has to defeat and progress up to get something for a mob boss who has kidnapped his family. But he never reaches the top uh, level of the pagoda uh, and you put some theories out there like you uh based on i think you one theory is is something based on bruce's script for the silent flute which was when he reaches the top level he will see a um a book a mirror book which basically shows him a, re- a reflection of himself basically saying you are the treasure or something <laughs> something like that that's how i interpret it but i have to ask do you have any kind of crazy theories as to what was on that top level what would he achieve if he actually got past all these masters uh, i don't have any crazy theories myself i mean okay. in terms of what that MacGuffin would have been um because yes he uh, he by all accounts, he was changing his mind like right up to the day he died. I mean, even right. there are people who say that the, his one his last conversation with Raymond Chow that he had before he went to Betty Tingpei's apartment, they were talking about the ending of the Game of Death, and you know Bruce was saying, "Oh, I finally come up with the ending," but we don't know what it is. And um, I mean, the the Book of Mirrors ending, I think, seems to be most appropriate for 
kind of what Bruce was reaching out for the rest of the footage, which was knowledge of the self and you know so, that kind of that that philosophical interpretation that um, John Little talked about quite a bit in his book A Warrior's Journey that kind of he released to accompany uh, the documentary he made. And I would very highly recommend that book as well if you're interested in reading any further about the game of death and Bruce Lee. That was you know I had it by my side a lot through a lot of the making the final game of death it was a invaluable resource not the least because he reprints a lot of the surviving script notes so um but yes the the book of mirrors one probably would be my uh i i think it's one of the more likely endings given uh from what i gather bruce was at the point where he was reusing parts of that silent flute script elsewhere or, or looking to do that rather than make that project again so yes that would be my guess mm. The, um, Can I throw my crazy theory out there? <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, please do. <laughs> okay, so, but yeah, I mean, as you say in the, in, in the documentary, uh, you know, it's like we'll never know what he intended. But the, when I was watching it, the, what I was thinking is that basically this temple is set up to determine who has the ultimate style. And basically every level, uh, the master that is at every level is basically in the same situation that Bruce is, in that this monster has his family hostage and he says you need to stay at this level and fight whoever comes up and this is basically his process of refining who has the ultimate style so basically when one person goes up the uh you know goes up the pagoda they defeat one master they become the master of that level you know when they uh they maybe take their place if they can't defeat the next master they go back to them to the next level so basically he's just pushing all these people in there as a way of seeing which style can actually make it to the top, um, uh, you know, refining and refining as the, all these masters get defeated. And then, of course, Bruce would be the guy <laughs> with his his flexible style, his be like water style, uh, which is, you know, of course, referenced many times in what Bruce shot. The idea of flexibility, adaptability, uh, his sort of flexible style would be the style that makes it to the top. But I assume that he would also, you know, not serve the purpose of, you know, uh, becoming the ultimate master for this mob, he would go, you know, defeat the bad guy in the end and, and save his family. But anyway, that's my theory for what Very it's interesting. Worth, is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> what about you, Nathan? Well, uh, look, the original night in the, in the Robert Klaus game of death, you know, we have uh, the bad guy thrown off the roof represented by an exquisite dummy. Right. So, what more do you need than a right. dummy? <laughs> the, but, um, the withered right. old man. Who's the, I, I, I do love a good dummy, movie. though. Yeah. I, I, it's, hard, it's hard to make a dummy look realistic, and that didn't look realistic at all. It was like, the, um, like one, of your, one of the films you've talked about uh, on your Twitter, um, James, uh, Robocop, you know, a, a, oh, sure. almost, almost a perfect film, but with one of, the, one of the, the worst dummies of all time, but you love it more because of the dummy. But... <laughs> But um, but I do want to. I want to hear a bad word said about RoboCop. That's not. You know. Oh, oh, wait, oh! Uh, on this podcast, we we swear by RoboCop. I will promise you, you that. We you are... know, because uh, I did the the uh, the Blu-ray and the 4K edition of the Arrow released in the last mm -hmm. few years, and you know, usually the case when you work on one of these things is that by the time you've signed it off, you never want to see the film again because you've seen mm -hmm. it so many times. RoboCop mm -hmm. is very much an exception. I would happily watch that film right now. Well, I'll say this. When we were growing up, um, before this is the age of genre films. This is the age of IP, where everything is being remade, remodeled, rebooted, whatever. You would you would have loved to see more RoboCop movies. And now, given the last 10 years, I don't want to see a new RoboCop movie. I want the original <laughs> film. It's perfect. Leave it alone because you're never going to top it. That's that's just it's selfish and it's small minded of me. But that's that's my that's my stereotype. But um, 
But I was going to say, to build on what Kevin was talking about with um, philosophy, um, what's funny, before we get into film restoration, because I have a theory I want to ask you, James, is that it's so funny that how much of the, the fever around Bruce Lee comes from his, you know, his personal um, philosophy of Jeet Kune Do and spiritualism and martial arts. But it's fun because the more you dig in, the more you realize a lot of that wasn't really his. Like a lot of mm. it was sort of Hollywood. Like it was Bruce taking sort of the um, the potential of cinema to sort of expound and magnify it. Um, you know, I, I love 70s film. I, I think we all do. I think we love 70s film. And I love 60s schlock TV. Um, you know, the Norman Lear stuff where everything was sort of over the top, like all in the family, good times and things like that, where it was social progressivism. But when, with Bruce Lee, his connection was, um, I know the writer uh, Sterling Silliphant, the man who wrote um, In the Heat of the Night, was very good friends with Bruce. Like the what you quoted before, Kevin, uh, you know, Be Like Water, that was not written by Bruce Lee. It was written yeah. by a TV writer, Sterling Silliphant, for a TV show. But it's become mythologized in a way that is inseparable from Bruce Lee. And like uh, you said, sure, I, I think he sorry not to, uh, you know, not to contradict you here, but I think he worked with this. It was done for this. The show um, Longstreet, right? Longstreet. Yeah. But I think yeah. Bruce did work with with the writer to oh, kind yeah. of interject his own philosophy. Uh, a lot of his philosophy also just comes from Asian um, sure. uh, classical Asian uh philosophy, Chinese philosophy, uh, et cetera. And he studied philosophy, I think, at university. So he did, you know, all of these quotes that we credit to Bruce Lee do actually have sources because he was a guy that understood the history of philosophy. And oh, he sure. took a lot of ideas and, you know, uh, repackaged them in, in his own way. Um, but did he did did the screenwriter for Longstreet write that line? Um, I think he was probably working with Bruce to some extent. Of I don't course. know. The um, but the idea is that you can take it and make it accessible to Western audiences. For example, um, you do this in your recreation, James, on the documentary, or excuse me, the recreation of the documentary, where Bruce Lee will say, "Hey, baby," you know, things like that. It's right. you don't, you're not <laughs> expecting a martial art master to say, "Hey, baby," you know, it's awesome. It works, and it, it's of its time, but it's for all time. And it's it's so 70s, like the the dialogue is so 70s, like oh, it works. Yeah. You know, can like you a, hang with? Can you groove with me, baby? You know, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, yeah, it, it's it's really of its time. You know, like this lingo would not you would not hear it any time <laughs> past 1975. Well, it's not stilted fortune cookie nonsense. It's it's something yep. that 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 feels like I said. It's we talked about this. Like I it, when I watch Enter the Dragon and you see moments that are clearly of the time and they're very dated. I would not change a, a pixel of it because that is exactly what the movie was. That that's the moment it captured. And I don't want it updated. I want it there. I want that time capsule of it. You know, when you look at you look into that world, you're looking at 1973 or 1972. And I love it. Right. Uh, but going back to modern stuff, though, James, as a, uh, going uh, sort of segueing into film restoration and filmmaking. Um, quick question. So I don't know if you've been following what's been happening with Marvel and DC and the whole idea of CG exploitation where everything is rendered on CG. But one interesting factoid that came out of that is that when when Marvel creates their blockbuster films, they actually film the action scenes first. Mm. And I thought that's so interesting because that's what Bruce Lee did <laughs> for Game of Death. Like before we had a story, before we have it, before we have directors, before we have anything, let's film the action scenes with CG. And I don't know um, what your thoughts on that are, that that film has sort of become a production line very similar to how Asian films were in the late 1960s and 70s. But they've become enormously successful using that method, like that sort of factory line method. 
Uh, I'm just wondering what you thought about that as someone who, you know, who deals with film restoration and deals with, um, you know, remastering. Well, I think the un the unfortunate truth at the moment is that the things have narrowed to such a degree where there's not that as many types of films that are being made. And I mean, that kind of the approach to filmmaking that you're talking about from uh, Marvel and DC. And again, I don't want to you know shit on those sure. movies. I've, I've enjoyed, you know, quite mm -hmm. a few of the Marvel films over the years. And um, but yeah, it's I think just that kind of cookie cutter kind of formula and kind of the where, you know, the director is almost incidental where they kind of have this kind of these animatics of action sequences. And then, you know, the director maybe gets to kind of let loose with some funny bits in between, but it all kind of has to be part of a house style, I think is, you know, I like things that are kind of more maybe idiosyncratic and a bit more kind of that aren't necessarily forced into that kind of those kind of formulas. And, um, Although that said, when you have things that are, are part of a movement and you are able to kind of see the similarities or the joins between things, whether it's the studio that made them, that often it, it, that's often very interesting in retrospect, in hindsight. And I mean, in terms of, you know, restoration, I think really, I think the main thing of restoration is just in terms of it's just it's the, you know, the importance of going back and looking for older stuff and kind of restoring things that, you know, may, may have came out. 50 years ago, but still as vital and, you know, entertaining mm -hmm. um, in ways that, you know, just aren't possible within the kind of current mechanisms that are around because they're not commercial enough or we've just things have narrowed to such a degree where, uh, you know, like you were saying earlier with Tom Cruise, you know, I mean, it, mm -hmm. you know, even I mean, sure, he's kind of the modern day action star, but even then the stuff that he makes that isn't Mission Impossible or Top Gun doesn't really opened a big box office it's all you know it, the, i mean I, don't get me wrong i love edge of tomorrow and uh, you know i'm a big tom cruise fan i love the mission impossible films but you know he's he is mainly sticking to these franchises now because that's the way that the box office has gone now it, it's you know if, if it's not kind of a recognizable ip a lot of the time people you know in their masses won't go out and see it uh, or unless it's got these kind of big brand names attached so um and i mean even then that the, the most recent mission impossible film has underperformed i mean i guess mm -hmm. a lot of things are underperforming now other than or barbie know, well barbie which is you know hugely <laughs> deserved success they've done something really fresh and brilliant with that film but i mean it's still uh you know it's still a brand it's still something that you know you don't have to say very much to get mm -hmm. bums on seats so i think in terms of restoration that's just where it becomes more and more important to just try and broaden people's horizons where it's like hey there's all this great stuff that has already been made don't just focus on modern stuff you know here's this exactly. great old stuff too well um in regards to think, uh, oh i'm sorry kevin oh no no sorry you you have to, i was gonna say that's what i think is great about uh, uh to james that's what i think is great about your uh, company arrow uh, sorry is it arrow films uh that the well yeah it's it, arrow video was the brand that we were released okay the arrow films was the company after arrow video was probably okay arrow video okay so uh, that's what i think is great about arrow video is that um it uh you know you have so many different types of films it's not like you focus on one type of you know 70s b movies or whatever it's like there's you know newer films older films uh but you know all films that have a very kind of uh niche audience and you know an audience that's passionate about them um, but uh, anyway, yeah, I love the, the you know, the, the films that uh, you guys are releasing there and also the additions are, you know, the, the you know, quality is great on all of them. No, thank you. I mean, the, the fact that it's such an eclectic catalog is one of the kind of pleasures of working at Arrow. I mean, right. uh, you know, there are other companies whose niche is really 
something specific like Japanese film or 80s horror or something. Or then you have a company like Criterion who are kind of limited by the fact that they are, you know, established as, you know, setting up a canon. It's like these are great films. These are masterpieces that we're releasing. Yeah films whereas we'll kind of just release whatever we want (laughs) it it doesn't have to kind of as long as it makes sense for us commercially or we can do something with it then we'll put it out it doesn't matter whether it's like i say a a best picture winner something like the apartment or the last emperor or it's microwave massacre or Mm. you know the way the or game of death or you know it's it's anything in between that is fair game and that's um like i say that's just a you know a, a pleasure to kind of work for a company that has that ethos where you know you get to really further you know the dialogue around these films and you know we're hugely passionate about the presentation of the, the films whether it's the restorations that we do or the context that the bonus features afford or the new artwork that we commission for it and you know be, to be able to have that kind of really granular uh dialogue and you know that with the films is something that you know uh is a film nerd's dream and i mean it's something that and you know being able to kind of bring these films back to audiences is you know just a real privilege um i'm actually a big big fan of um sort of the uh die 70s uh the japanese film company die uh, sure. yokai yeah. movies and and mm-hmm. like also daimajin the daimajin series uh, they also did Gamera, and I really appreciate that you guys uh, restored all those films, especially the yokai ones, because uh, those for anyone that's into yokai, uh, those 70s, you know, Daiei yokai movies, they're they're really great, and they're really the first of their kind uh, in Japanese cinema. Did you have anything to do with those? Sure did, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the big <laughs> yeah. Gamera set that came out three years ago, that was one of mine. That was the, up until okay. Bruce Lee, that was the most, <laughs> that was the most ambitious thing i'd ever done at arrow and this big cereal box sized thing that had comic books and all kinds of other stuff in it and uh yeah i, I funnily enough kind of the because i'd never seen a gamma film or a, uh, really many other tokusatsu films i'd maybe seen a few godzillas but i hadn't really yeah. seen uh you know any other films of that ilk before i took on the gamma project and so to become immersed in that world and in that genre um i didn't do the dimension set but i did the yokai monsters one as well okay. but that was um just a real again just really interesting just to be able to get to grips with the ins and outs of the genre and talk to enthusiasts and people who knew their stuff about it and you know it's fun that you get to be kind of a tourist in these things for a while where you get to kind of you know really immerse yourself in these different types of films that you never knew about before and having done that i was then offered the opportunity to do uh the shaw brothers box set because we've done uh, a few of those now and that was a similar thing where you know we uh i barely i hadn't seen that many kung fu films or that many kind of uh, hong kong action films but i thought well you know i've had a great time working on these japanese tokusatsu films maybe hong kong action films would be fun as well and years later i'm still working on them we're working on you know uh sure scope volume three that'll be out next summer probably oh so, that's great so yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, like I say being you get to be kind of a I, by no means am i an expert on the genres or i don't really know anything about the, the the any of the i don't know anything about films that aren't part of the releases that i'm i've worked on but i really take my research seriously in terms of the stuff that i am assigned and you know try to 
make them little film schools as well and kind of you know, because a lot of the times when people buy these things they don't know anything about the genre either so where i'm in a position to be able to imbue my journey of discovery into the actual product itself is uh one of the really fun things about doing this james i got a question uh regarding not just film restoration but film preservation in regards mm. to what arrow does um sure. you know we you know in America, uh, just to be clear, we had chatted about this before the podcast, um, Aero Video, which I know has a U.S. distribution market as well. But in regards to like the Bruce Lee at Golden Harvest uh, 4K box set, the one we're talking about, where the, the documentary is included, it's not currently available in the United States. So I do encourage anybody to traipse outside of, you know, their IP and, and try to find a way to import the disc, which, you know, if you have a region free Blu-ray player, excuse me, 4K Blu-ray player, then I think that would be optimal. Um, but you mentioned Criterion, and I do want to ask you a question about this, because we're talking about movies that some may consider schlock, classic, whatever. With uh, Arrow, there's a reverence there that I think is apparent on the screen. Um, it doesn't matter if you're doing Gamera or Giallo or Japanese or whatever. You know, if, if I want to see the zombie fight the shark, I want to see the zombie fight the shark, and I want to see it preserved. You know, and but there was a little controversy earlier this year in regards to Criterion, which actually was really shocking and surprising with the film The French Connection. I, I don't know if you know the one I'm talking about. Sure. Uh, this is about the uh, the version that was on the Criterion channel, yes. but censored of the, yeah. Which, and I, from what I understand, it it might be the new print going forward, going forward. Um, but that had come out, on, you know, coincidentally, just before what, director William Freakin passed away, you know, RIP. Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, if, if you're listening to this, I can't repeat what he's saying, but um, if you really want to enjoy yourself, go watch some really William Freakin interviews. Um, not safe for work, but they're hilarious. R.I.P. But he was alive when it came out that his film had been edited. A specific scene had been edited and with no notice about the edit. So that's not something I think anybody expected from a, pro, a film preservationist uh, outfit like Criterion. Now, given the given the content of a lot of the films that Arrow releases, um, I don't I don't think I've ever heard of censorship like that with these films. I would. Is that something you think Arrow would would be uh, again would take a stand against if it, if it came to your desk and said we need to edit this because of modern audiences or would we put a, a trigger warning in front of it? Uh, that's a very interesting question. And it's something that we talked about quite a lot kind of internally where. You know, again, to be fair to Criterion mm -hmm. for a moment, from uh, my understanding of the situation was that that was the file that they were supplied. It, they, mm -hmm. it wasn't their censorship. It was a file that they had been supplied by Disney, who now owned 20th Century Fox, who mm -hmm. owned the French Connection. And they it was Fox that had Disney that had edited mm -hmm. out the racist language from the French Connection. Um possibly at Freakin's behest it's a little bit ambi ambiguous I've yeah. seen some but uh because certainly Freakin was no stranger to uh tinkering with his films and yeah. you know ask, asking for adjustments to be made and you know uh I, I love Freakin's movies like I mean that patch trick of French Connection Exorcist and particularly Sorcerer is just unimpeachable but you know it's he had, uh, as anyone who has bought Arrow Video's edition of Cruising will know, uh, <laughs> Freakin had a tendency to tinkle with his films. And I think that might have been, uh, I think that might have been an example, that version of the French Connection that was on streaming. I don't know for sure, but that's that's uh, from, that's my kind of interpretation mm -hmm. of events. I mean, in terms of what Arrow would do, uh, so in terms of censorship, no, we wouldn't do 
uh, it's generally our policy not to take on a project where that kind of where we would be uneasy about the content from the start it would it just, if that was the case we'd rather not release it i think i mean maybe that's maybe you could argue that's a form of censorship but um in terms of making choices about cutting material mm -hmm. that's not really something we would do i mean sometimes we're in a position where either we are in in the uk at least not in the us but in the uk we're sometimes forced to cut films because of uh, animal cruelty because uh, the British Board of Film Classification, which is our equivalent of the MPAA, uh, says that we have to uh, because it's uh, compulsory to do as they say, kind of in this country. Um, or sometimes if we're working with a filmmaker and they have a very strong, uh, generally we would like to offer the untampered version at least as a bonus or option or something, but sometimes very rare occasions like William Freakin where uh, they what they say goes and we kind of have to go with what they say and if they want to sure. present that film upside down and backwards we've got to do it so <laughs> we'd rather mm. not and sometimes we try and avoid that situation at the start if we can but sometimes when we want to work on these films that's just you kind of have to do as they say but no we wouldn't i i mean we wouldn't kind of cut a film to be more um you know politically correct or something not that I, anything's wrong with uh, political correctness in my opinion but in terms of whether or not you'd put a uh, a trigger warning or something i don't know i mean a couple of examples from stuff i've done at arrow that may be a bit more relevant to this are well uh, one thing that happened so a couple of the films that i worked on early on were a couple of john hughes movies uh 16 candles and mm. weird science and uh, some of the kind of sexual politics of those films uh, have not aged very well, particularly 16 Candles, where you've got jokes about date rape and there's a whole scene involving and, and racism yeah. as well. There's a uh, Chinese character there. My kind of position making these things was that, you know, to try and be inclusive, to try and, you know, present these films in such a way where we're not throwing the film under the bus. We're not throwing the filmmaker under the bus, but we're also not ignoring the elephant in the room. So how can we? can we find a way to kind of bridge that gap and do it in such a way where we're acknowledging the fact that these things have not aged very well, but in a way that feels like it, you know, gives uh, new viewers a context from which they can kind of understand and appreciate it. So that's kind of the way we are kind of, I, personally, I prefer to do it where, you know, you have a, you know, you're able to, like I say, not ignore the elephant in the room, but just to clear the air and, the people who want to enjoy the film uh, for whatever reason can do so, but we're not depriving them of a particular moment in the film, but we're also giving newcomers a chance to appreciate it for, for what it is, as opposed to, you know, just, just what it was at the time. Um, the other kind of, <laughs> the other thing that leaps to mind was uh, one of the very first things I did at Arrow was uh, a box set of the sister street fighter films. And, uh, in the second one of those films there was a scene where again we had to do some optical censorship at the behest of the bbfc where uh the villain in that film there's a scene where uh the villain of that film has a kind of a, an art print hanging up on the wall which is a photograph of a naked prepubescent girl and that was like you know that was a very difficult situation where well a we had to censor that seen in the uk anyway because of the, the the laws that uh you know the bbfc have asked us to follow um so what we chose to do was just to crop out that rather than cut the scene out uh we cropped the 
the image so that you couldn't see the the art print because there was dialogue going on the scene there. But for the um, that was for the British release. But for the American release, we left the scene intact with the uncropped frame because the film had already been released in the US in that form, and because we didn't have to, we didn't have to ascribe by that censorship. Now there are people who have bought that Blu-ray in the US who have been quite upset by our decision to leave the film untampered. And I'm not going to lie, there are times where I wonder whether I made the right decision there to do that because you know i i don't feel easy with you know having worked on something that has that image it kind of does make me feel a bit weak but at the same time that's also making a value judgment that you know the company it it kind of sets the precedent for the company to make a value judgment that is you know was not something that we wanted to do at that time so for better or for worse that was where we came down on it would we make the same decision today i don't really know probably but possibly well, not no you know, you know, our great president, Abraham Lincoln, you know, once talked about you can't please everybody all the time. You know, all the people. No, certainly not. No, no, yeah. no. That is, you, you working on this stuff, you learn to grow a very thick skin very quickly in terms of, uh, you know, not everyone is going to agree with your interpretation of things or particularly when it comes to artwork. You know, the new artwork that we commission, uh, it's usually <laughs> that we get a lot of people going, oh, I hate this artwork. Why don't you just use the original stuff? And you know, it by no means is there ever a consensus on what works and what doesn't. So you kind of have to just trust your gut and get on with it. Otherwise, you never get it done. I was going to say, um, if, if to, to close out the censorship thing, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the most famous example of how Bruce Lee influenced British censorship hilariously. Going back to what Kevin talked about, the Ninja Turtles. You know, mm. when I was <laughs> when I was the numchucks, Well, when I was growing up, um, I had a nephew from Britain. You know, my my sister had married uh, an air force man, and they lived in lived in London. And he would come over and bring his VHS tapes. And I was witnessing an alternate dimension when I watched his turtles. You know, they, he had VHS copies of I think PAL versions. I think it was called the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm of the age where I grew up watching the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles cartoon. In yes. fact. The Golden Harvest film, the 1990 yeah. film, was the first film I ever saw in the cinema. So those were the versions that I saw growing up that were, yeah, the BBFC. The, the director of the BBFC, who was a guy called James Furman, had, was waging, he, just, he had a real bugbear about nunchucks. He did not like them. And anything that even vaguely resembled nunchucks, he wanted cut out to the point where <laughs> in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> 2, there's a scene where Michelangelo was swinging around yes. a link of sausages, and that was cut out because it looked like nunchucks. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. What's ironic is if in the second live action movie, there were complaints from American parents as well that, they, that there was too much violence. So if you watch the second live action film, none of them actually use any of their weapons, they use right. stand ins. And so, I mean, so even we had a little bit of that, that craziness here. Although I don't think the United States has ever gone as far as to have our version of like the video nasties or anything which would be right. which would be fun to talk about too but, well um, there's also the fact that in america um as i think i've alluded to earlier um it's uh it's optional you don't have to submit anything to a class to a kind of a ratings board or anything like that whereas in the uk it is compulsory uh we have to you know spend money getting the bbfc to watch everything that we were releasing in the uk because you know that's uh that's the that's the protocol that's the kind of that's how they make sure that nothing illegal where it comes to, where it comes mm -hmm. to uh you know it, this ever shifting set of criteria but usually it, it's kind of pared down to sort of um 
you know, the main thing now is animal cruelty or uh, inappropriate depictions of young people, which uh, I, I, to be honest, I agree with. I agree with kind of, you know, I'm not entirely anti-censorship when it comes to things like that. Uh, I don't believe that ev entirely everything is fair game, but, you know, that's coming from a, a very privileged position now where things are much, much better than they were 20 years ago when, you know, 25 years ago when, you know, uh, like even seeing the uncut Evil Dead was something that was just a fantasy at that point. The idea that that would come out uncut in the UK and, you know, the fact that yeah, Evil Dead Rise comes out with, you know, uncut with no problem at all. It's just that's how much things have changed. But yeah. The, uh, and before we start closing out, though, I just have a, one more quick question about sort of restoration versus revisionism. Mm. Sure. So I, it was I was trying to look up other films. I, I the only one that came to mind to me, I had a couple about films that were never completed by the original you know, author of the film, and then other studios would come and take over. Recently, I know there was Orson Welles, you know, The Other Side of the Wind, which yes, Netflix yeah. sort of took on. And I don't know if this one counts, but I kind of love it, so I'm going to put it in there. Uh, Richard Williams, you know, The Thief and the Cobbler, yes, which, which, was, which many versions, you know. And I'll just put it in there because I like the song, but, you know, the Beatles, Free as a Bird, you know. And um, now we have talk about AI helping Paul McCartney create a new Beatles song. And and by the way, if I can just talk about AI for one quick second, because mm -hmm. I'm tired of AI, you know and I know it's coming, that at some point AI will get to the point where they will use AI to complete Game of Death. You know, oh, they will sure. Use it. Yeah. Lots of, lots of people have asked me, why didn't you use AI to recreate the voices or do this, that, or the other? It's like... <laughs> Well, it will happen. No, because they, you know, well, a those tools will not are not really accessible to us, and I don't know. B, I've got qualms about using AI for that kind of thing. It, it's yeah. it, it's certainly not as straightforward as everyone seems to think it is. I'll just use AI. It's fine. It's like no, no. <laughs> I'd rather pay someone to do something than you know. Well, there was talk about um some studio hired the like because you know I think the next next frontier is going to be CG likenesses where. Disney sort of pioneered that, but it's going to become applicable. Like, it's one thing to say, you know, sorry to, to sort of nuzzle in this, but like, it's one thing to say Tupac Shakur died and left this treasure trove of lyrics, and then producers will come in 20 years later and make new songs and have new hits. It's another thing to say, well, let's have Tupac dance as a hologram, but now let's have a Tupac CG act in your movie. And uh, I think a, a year or two ago, they Apparently, the, the company that owns the license for James Dean has licensed out his persona to feature in a film. I don't know if that film's ever coming out, but I could easily see this happen with Bruce Lee. Like, at some point, they'll they'll have new Bruce Lee films. I mean, they've sort of done it already with commercials and things. Yeah. You know, with licensing, with commercials. There was, you know, I remember that one where he's um, supposedly hitting a ping pong ball. Oh, with yeah. his dumpster. You know, it's, it's like, and I've seen different things. Like, it's already happened. But, I mean... As AI progresses, it's going to get more and more murky in terms of the, you know, the uh, efficacy uh, of it, um, because, you know, you're going to have something that looks just like Bruce Lee, talks just like Bruce Lee. And, um, you know, yeah, it's it's going to be hard for people to to distinguish that from from who Bruce Lee actually was. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, but I do agree with you that it's it's coming. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, you know, Paul Walker didn't finish fast and the furious but he was in it you know they'll, right. they'll find ways to to recreate the character but um but what i was talking about on that uh you know you have steven spielberg changing et to remove guns to put walkie talkies and then saying whoops let's put the guns back so 
you know, you have, like you said, directors like William Freakin will tinker and we'll have George Lucas thousand versions of Star Wars. But going forward, though, with Aerofilm specifically, I know in America we also have, you know, Shout Factory, who I think also changed their name to Shout Studios, which is a terrible name. Keep it Shout Factory, please. Factory is much better. But when it comes to what Arrow's doing and what you're doing, James, the, um, the, the precedent seems to be on physical media versus streaming. Would you say that's correct? Uh, that is correct. Arrow does have a streaming platform called Arrow Player, uh, yeah. which is uh, has a lot of our stuff. In the UK, you can stream the Bruce Lee stuff on there, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. So where all of our stuff, obviously, depending on what territory it's been released in. But yes, all of our stuff goes on there as well. But sure, I, I, I without wanting to throw the digital team under the bus because they work very hard and Arrow Play yes. is a great platform and you should all subscribe. Uh, certainly physical is our bread and butter and it's the thing that we are primarily known for. Yeah. But it's also a way to sort of keep these products from, again, if let's, for example, let's say you have a criterion of uh, the French connection, you have a prior sensor, you have a, you have a more original version that you have versus you're at the whims of whatever this, the streaming company decides to upload that day. So as a, I, I, I assume you have a preference for physical as well. I know there's, there's bit rate issue, there's bit rate superiority. There's of course, latency issues like Blu-ray 4K looks awesome. It looks fantastic and I love it. But what would you say to those people who are into film preservation specifically? Would you encourage them to buy as much physical media as they can? Or would you encourage them to sort of spend on streaming services? I mean, either way. Well, I, I'm certainly biased, but <laughs> I mean, my, I, I, I 100% say that physical is really the only way to ensure that you have uh, access to the content that you want to watch when you want to watch it. Because, you know, although streaming gives you the illusion of this infinite choice and this ease of access, uh, the truth is that it can be taken away from you at a second's notice uh, or it can be changed and replaced with an alternate version, as you say um yeah physical is certainly the only way uh barring any uh difficult conversations about long-term disc rot and whether that's a thing but uh which you know it's uh probably about as relevant as a platform suddenly disappearing or going out of business or something but i mean you know when disney bought 20th century fox uh you know that library is just being horrendously un, you know underrepresented on disney's you know digital services at least in the uk and you know the fact that i have to go to my physical copies to see a lot of the old 20th mm-hmm. century fox films that i want to watch is just it's an embarrassment to disney you've got this amazing library of films why aren't you using them um and the star wars conversation is really interesting in terms of like not going down too far down the road of obviously the 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 fan preservations and stuff but you know the fact that to this day, you can only get kind of a specific version that has not been represented on digital in any form. And it's to some degree, it's kind of obviously, you know, I mean, the digital stuff is great in terms of there's a lot of stuff that is coming out. I think the kind of the, the you know, the streaming platforms and the digital revolution, it's, it's offered a tremendous opportunity in terms of the amount of stuff that's come out and new opportunities for kind of funding some of these restorations. But you know, when uh, people have been saying for years will happen, when that physical market eventually dwindles to the point where it's not sustainable anymore. I have no idea what that means in terms of restorations and to what degree, because my certainly my impression has been that, you know, the physical market is really what's been bankrolling or sustaining a lot of those kind of digital film restoration efforts. And, you know, it's uh, long may it continue. I mean, people have been saying for years that, 
you know, I, I remember going to a talk called the death of DVD question mark, which was 12 years ago or something. And, you know, the physical market is still showing few signs of letting up. I'm sure eventually it will do when it gets to the point where it just it becomes almost impossible to manufacture these things. You know, when you have factories who decide they can't make the numbers work anymore and, you know, whatever else. But uh you know as long as it's going i'll be part of it <laughs> if i have anything to do with it and you know i'm sure arrow is gonna carry on for as long as it can as well sure and you know it's so funny i, I would caution anybody who who would who would assume that physical would go away uh the last five years in the music in the music business we've seen vinyl be resurrected and become a dominant force like outsells compact disc and uh, it competes with streaming and it does very very well I mean, there is a market for a physical media in whatever form. I mean, who, maybe who knows? Maybe eight, uh, maybe eight millimeter film will come back, and that will be the new hotness. I mean, laser disc. Laser disc. Hey, we could. Yeah. Danny, Danny DeVito would be very happy if that happened. You know, he was a. I remember watching those commercials with him. Uh, he was a big enthusiast of laser disc back in the day. Sure. And, um, but I was going to say, uh, I think I think we've tapped out. I think we've talked everything we can. And I want to I want to thank our special guest today. Mr. James Flower, the director and creator of the new gigantic video th video essay thesis, uh, The Final Game of Death, available exclusively as part of a gigantic, equally gigantic box set available from Arrow Films. Um, that would be Bruce Lee at Golden Harvest, limited edition 4K. You can order it now online if you have a region-free Blu-ray player, excuse me, Blu-ray 4K player, Ultra HD, so many words. Please order it now. It's fantastic. It's awesome. If you're a Bruce Lee fan, you will be in heaven. You'll have more content than you could ever imagine. James, thank you very much. It has been outstanding. My pleasure. Thank you very much, guys. And yeah, for anyone who doesn't know much about Arrow and would like to learn more, uh, please do visit our website, which is uh, arrowvideo.com in the US and arrowfilms.com in the UK. So. Yeah. And I also want to thank our other special guest, Mr. Mr. Kevin from YouTube Story Dive. Kevin, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. James, we will talk to you later. Thank you very much, and best of luck with everything with Gamera, Giallo, and everything else. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Pop Zara podcast. Remember to like, follow, share, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app or service.